0: You're listening to OT Uncorked. I'm your host, Miranda Rennie. On OT Uncorked, we uncork hot topics in occupational therapy and a bottle of wine. take a moment before this episode just to acknowledge that this is a really chaotic and challenging time for everyone with the current COVID-19 situation. It's challenging our daily routines, our habits, our finances, our work and living situations. For many people, it's affecting child care and the list just goes on and on. So for those of you who are still able to practice in your setting, I want to encourage you and thank you for all that you're doing. I've already heard so many stories from OT practitioners who have been able to help, for example, their older adult clients connect virtually with their family members, really bridging the environmental barriers with technology to facilitate social engagement and participation in those really meaningful occupations, even if it's a little different uh, than our clients are accustomed to. And I know that many of you have also transitioned to telehealth, And for some, that's a really tough transition riddled with logistical and just technological challenges. So thank you for braving those difficulties in addition to those challenges that you're already facing in your own life because of this crisis. Um, And I just commend you all and hope that OT podcasters, including myself, can provide you with some encouragement and good content during this season to keep your spirits up. Uh, We love to hear those success stories during challenging times. So please do reach out and we'd love to share that with other people. So today I'm really excited to share an episode I recorded with Kathleen Davidson, an OT student whose professional background is in professional dance performance and choreography. So she talks about her love of movement, which is a common thread throughout her life and how movement has served her mind, body, and soul. She draws on her personal experience to talk about identity, routine, roles, and so much more that has impacted her life, both before she found OT and now that she prepares to be an OT practitioner in the near future. I hope you enjoy. I'm
1: Kathleen Davidson and yeah i'd love to talk about my journey this is my second career and i am currently a second year master's student in occupational therapy and it's been very exciting to take this new chapter on in my life yeah and so because this is your second career today
0: we are drinking a wine called second voyage it's a cabernet sauvignon 2018 and it is from South Australia, yeah. Cheers to that. Absolutely. So we will be drinking this throughout the show, and we'll kind of give them some input on what we think at the end. I love that. All right. I'm excited. So you mentioned this is your second career. Yes. So can you tell us about
1: your first career and sort of how that evolved? Absolutely. When I was in high school, I was a bunhead i was very much <laughs> into ballet that was my life and i think i knew that that was what i wanted to be i was dancing every day after school and cramming my homework in at lunchtime so that i could go to rehearsals and performing and i just thought those performers are having so much fun that's what i want to do so my first job uh, out of high school was dancing with the houston ballet actually graduated about six months earlier to go move from Arizona where I was growing up to Houston, Texas and dance in a professional ballet company, which was like a dream come true. I loved it. It was uh, very exciting, and, but also very rigorous, very competitive, and uh, but at the same time, some of the best years of my life.
0: Um, so everyone else was in physics class and you were dancing professionally as ballerina living the dream.
1: <laughs> exactly. I just kind of figured out how to get all what I, my requirements were for high school, but my head was always listening to music or, you know, finding out, you know, who my favorite dancers were at the time and what companies were performing and where did I see myself? So that that's how I got to Houston and uh, but then I have my parents were very much uh, had both gone to college and they felt very privileged to have gone to college and they made it very clear to me that you know this is something that you no one can take away from you and you should take that opportunity very seriously if you can. So I was getting a lot of pressure and and also just because of long term I think my dad was thinking well how is she going to take care of herself. So I auditioned for Juilliard on a whim, and they have a four-year dance program along with their very famous music school and acting division, and I got in. And when I visited New York City, I was like, this is something I've never experienced. There's just so much culture, so much, I mean, there were so many different types of dancers too. Now it wasn't just ballet. I was introduced to American modern dance all kinds of different styles of dance, whether it was African dance, Indian dance, our electives were quite extensive. So Uh I went in as sort of a very much, I want to be a ballet dancer, and I came Mm -hmm. out much more of a well-rounded artist, like how am I going to make a career out of this and keep more balance in my life? So that's how I got there. Mm -hmm. And I got my undergraduate degree.
0: And you auditioned in juilliard on a whim
1: it was on a whim (laughs) i stayed i flew to new york with two or three friends and i remember going out and around in the west village and visiting lincoln center thinking oh wow this is exciting there's so much to do and i mean there's bathtub in the kitchen and you know the apartments were really small but i just found it very exciting to have that freedom and you get on the subway and you can be in another part of town uh, and then when I went, it was the longest audition I've ever done. It was a, an entire day, and wow. y- you would kind of make it to the next stage and then they you know you would go have lunch and come back and do more solos. Like you had to prepare multiple solos and you know they would have you um, you know perform in different styles. Mm. So it was a long day and, and, and it was an extensive application as well. so. When I found out I got in, I was super excited. But yeah. I was like, a, kind of naive in the sense that it was a good thing I didn't realize how competitive it was mm-hmm. because I, I think I probably would have been too scared to even audition. Maybe yeah.
0: that's happened to me before in life, where <laughs> not the dance audition part, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, but just not realizing maybe the magnitude or some of the sort of prestige of something that I'm doing until after I've gotten over that immediate hurdle of imposter syndrome, and it is such a great thing when that happens, right?
1: It's so much easier, and in hindsight, thank goodness, because nerves are very real, and uh, I think at the time, I knew what my strengths were, and I knew I had a lot more to learn, so I think they probably saw my enthusiasm and my passion, so... My, my strong suit was ballet, mm-hmm. and but I really took to modern dance. I liked mm-hmm. the abstractness of it, and I felt that it was time, you know, I wanted to be more grounded in my work, and, and I was seeing a lot more modern dance. I hadn't really gone to many performances, and so that was part of my education, too, is being exposed mm-hmm. to that and seeing, like, dancers from the Al- Alvin Ailey Company and... You know, just touring companies come in and out of New York. It really is the dance capital. Um, But uh, when I think about ballet versus modern dance, Mm -hmm. it's funny because when I was taking my prerequisites to get into OT school, Mm -hmm. I was taking anatomy, which I loved. I already had taken anatomy actually in college because they had a dancer, anatomy for dancers program or class. That's really valuable. It's extremely, and it was all taught from the perspective of dancers, and and uh, I remember loving that class. But anyway, coming back and taking it later on in life, I felt that ballet was very much like anatomy. It's very concrete, it's very straightforward. You learn all your terms, mm-hmm. and then you get to physiology, and it's like, <laughs> oh, all these processes and processes and different ways, how do you get from here to there? What is that system doing? And that to me is really like modern dance mm-hmm. is how can you make your movement efficient? How can you make you know, the transition from the floor to the air you know, as effortless as possible? And so I was really intrigued by the connection of movement and learning just a different way of dancing, more from the inside out. Ballet, at least for when you're first learning it, you really rely on that mirror because that gives you the feedback that you need to shape your body. Whereas modern dance, they frequently will just cover the mirrors, and you have to rely on your internal body schema to figure out where you are in space. So,
0: That's fantastic. I love that description. Yeah, cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that metaphor between anatomy and physiology and ballet and modern, mm-hmm. I feel like that just really, I don't know, as an OT student who I used to dance when I was younger, yeah. but not very well. Um,
1: Hey, you know what? If there's always new dances to learn. Let me tell you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, but that that comparison just really made a lot of sense to me, and it's just very beautiful. It really made, it mean, physiology beautiful. Yeah, I mean, I that's
1: what made brought me really into those classes because mm-hmm. physiology was for me was very difficult, and I the way I could break it down and understand it is is to see okay, there's a system here. There's a, there's a mm-hmm. There's a process that's happening here, and I have to just kind of step back and take a look at it like that
2: mm-hmm.
1: in order to understand. And, uh, yeah.
0: Hmm. That's really cool. Yeah, thank the you. The scientific process and the artistic process yeah, kind of creating this fuller picture for you of movement, and I mean, a lot of physiology, too, is is really talking about the movement, even within systems. Even so within the
1: system. So in modern dance, you really think about the breath, Mm -hmm. and how the breath can initiate movement, and that to me, those integrated body systems, that's kind of how I segued when I was taking my physiology. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. The other really interesting thing I distinctly remember is one of my modern dance professors uh, had recently had a baby, Mm -hmm. and the name... The baby was brought in, and since we spend a lot of time in modern dance rolling around on the floor, <laughs> this was a really cool experience because we were watching how a baby, you know, lays on their back and how they initiate movement from the very earliest stages in life. And uh, there were a, there's a ton of crossover, especially in Limon dance technique, which is José Limon, he's uh, one of the founding... Uh, modern greats. Uh, he's from Mexico, no longer alive, but uh, Jose Limon. And so we were learning about the dynamics of his movement by watching this professor's baby wow. who wasn't even sitting up yet, but how do they roll to their side? And, and that was really, really interesting because you see this baby doesn't really know yeah, i'm rolling to my side but everything is mm. just that head tail curl is a really big concept okay. um and these other ways of shifting weight and moving mm. through space that i think at that moment i didn't realize but now looking back i feel like i was really curious wow that that's that's the human body like how mm. we evolve how we come into a, a sit sitting upright position how we go into standing you yeah. know going onto all fours and then coming up I feel like I digressed there quite a bit. No, I love <laughs> it. I
0: love it. I feel like there's just this passion for movement. And Always. actually, it's, I think, one of the first sentences when I met you that you uh-huh. said is that you love movement. Oh, <laughs> did I
1: really? You did? That's hilarious. Okay. That's so funny. Um, and so
0: that's, you know, kind of what got me really interested mm-hmm. in, in learning more about your background and mm-hmm. just that interest and attention to detail of movement and mm-hmm. just how beautiful it is mm-hmm. and how functional it is as well.
1: Exactly. And that's, for me, what I learned from being a modern dancer is that functional. When you can be efficient in your movement, it's really functional and your body can go so much further. You're not, you're not wasting a lot of uh, extraneous effort. Mm-hmm. And so now when I look at patients who have had strokes and thinking about children who might not have the most coordinated movements, mm-hmm. My brain is going. Wow, what's where's where's the disconnect happening, and how can I? Sometimes I have to put myself in their body, in my own head, mm-hmm. so that I can try to feel what they're feeling. I'm very kinesthetic mm-hmm. as well as a mover, so <laughs> I have to kind of do in order to to feel and to articulate. Um, mm. But I find that I find that the stroke population and. Children who are developing their fine and gross motor skills are is particularly interesting mm-hmm. to me.
0: So, you're at Juilliard. At Juilliard, you are seeing and learning more about movement and this one experience you just talked about with your mm-hmm. professor's baby mm-hmm. really kind of kept those gears turning in that direction. Yeah. So. And we know now you're in OT school. Yeah. So what so happened in between? Oh, my goodness. So much. I,
1: well, yeah, to make a long story short, I after I graduated, I had a degree now in dance. And I started performing freelancing in New York mm-hmm. City. I was also teaching and doing odd jobs just to make ends meet because mm-hmm. dancers live a very, very tough life. And uh, so I was also really working my teaching skills. I... Became certified in Gyrotonics. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Not tell me more. Okay, Gyrotonics is. It was initially started in the '90s near Seattle. It was originally called Yoga for Dancers. It was developed by a former dancer. Okay. And it's a beautiful system. It integrates yoga, Tai Chi, dance, uh, swimming, gymnastics. It's very circular, the movements. It's all about um, utilizing your joints, your spine, in three-dimensional movement. It looks, if I had to compare it to anything, like mm-hmm. the equipment, it doesn't look like the same, but it in a similar sense to Pilates, where you use a, equipment to facilitate mm-hmm. uh, strengthening and flexibility, same with gyrotonics. It's, uh, but it whereas Pilates is very two-dimensional, mm-hmm gyrotonics is very three-dimensional, so, uh, wow. so I was teaching, I was performing, yeah. and then I got injured, and, uh, that kind of, like,
2: uh, mm-hmm. changed gears for me, and that
1: was kind of a life change. Um,
0: so, when you were injured, did that really just kind of stop your dance career to halt? Did it just change what your dance career looked like?
1: Yeah, I think it would... It changed how my dance career what my dance career looked Mm -hmm. like because I think it was a it was kind of a gradual situation where I was getting a lot of achiness in Mm -hmm. my hip and you know going to physical therapy and it kind of became like this chronic thing but always feeling like my leg was going to give out under me Mm -hmm. it turns out I had a labral tear which is in the lining of the hip socket Mm -hmm. and uh I was very fortunate in that I met my husband around that time, and we decided to move to the West Coast because I don't think there would have been any other way I would have stopped dancing and mm-hmm. taken a minute to figure out what I needed to do to keep my body. And I just got to the point where I thought, all right, I'm you know, in my late 20s, and I want to be walking when I'm in my 30s and 40s. And I had mm-hmm. seen several professors and teachers who you know, had quite significant limps, or already had one or two hip replacements yeah. so i was very scared but i had an arthroscopic procedure done and it was amazing and while it took me a year to fully get back to mm-hmm. the level of performing where i was at um it was 100 percent worth it yeah.
0: so for about a year year plus you mm-hmm. were kind of out of commission for dancing yep What was that experience like for you as someone who had really a strong identity as a dancer?
1: That that identity piece for me really ties into occupational therapy. Mm -hmm. When somebody has an illness or an accident and all of a sudden everything you knew, everything you thought about yourself is gone in an instant and you can't rely on that. And I knew from a young age, okay, I want to be a dancer. This is what I'm doing. And I remember having friends saying, oh, you're so lucky. You know exactly what you want to do. <laughs> I was like, I guess so. You know, I didn't think about it much. Sure. And then with this, with the, the injury and having to take time off and really reassess, mm-hmm. you know, am I going to get back to where I was? Do I even want to? It's such a hard career. And yeah. you don't get health insurance. You have to pay for it. Uh, sure. Probably even today, I, although I've been out of the field for a while, health insurance is, was... I, don't, I didn't have health insurance for many years, and that was a big risk that I took. Um, and then when I did get injured and I knew I needed surgery, I didn't want to tell my boss, my the director of the company I was dancing with, because I would become a liability. And I didn't want to bankrupt the dance company because I needed workman's comp. So
2: <laughs>
1: I chose to just leave gracefully My husband and I, well, he wasn't my husband at the time. Mm -hmm. We just decided we needed a change. It was New York City, post Mm 9-11, and we were ready to take a break and move out west. And I think that really helped me. That separation or transition Mm -hmm. got me into the place where I could consider reinventing myself. Mm -hmm. Going back to that identity piece. I couldn't walk for the first three months without a significant limp.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: I thought, wow. I took for granted every single day that I could just pop up or,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, be out late one night and be up in dance class the next day. And to have to mm-hmm. slow down and learn to walk again. I remember being, uh, going to a pool where most, uh, it was pretty much a geriatric population mm-hmm. and myself. And we would be exercising in the pool and it was lovely. <laughs> Were you um, leading them in gyrotonics? <laughs> no. I actually couldn't do gyrotonics oh. because the range of motion would have been too I really oh. I had to basically limit my range of motion because that's the last thing mm-hmm. that they wanted me to do is I had to almost reduce my turnout, really like
2: mm-hmm. bring
1: everything in, rein it in and I distinctly remember at three months, the nerves and the muscles sinking up.
0: This period of transition that you're describing just sounds really challenging mentally, emotionally. You were experiencing an injury that changed your career. You're moving across the country. You're- <laughs> re-evaluating what you want to do with yeah. the rest of your life right? yeah, exactly. not to sound dramatic but it, it seems no, like was it, happening
1: It definitely how I think of my late 20s early 30s and my mom died very suddenly and during mm. that point in my life I can talk about it now because it was a while ago but uh, she had a brain aneurysm and basically was one of those moments where you get a phone call and we had like mm. you know we had to go all my brothers and sisters had to fly home and and, and she didn't make it, uh, which is a blessing in disguise in some ways, and uh, she was able to donate her organs, which mm-hmm. was also a, a, a beautiful moment for us in that very, very dark time. And, but I do remember processing for a long time, what if she had survived the aneurysm? What would that process have looked like for her? Mm-hmm. And. I think about it to this day when I'm working with patients who have had strokes because there's no one way, there's no right way, there's no wrong way. But that identity shift, I mean, it's real and I really support any of my clients or patients who are facing a transition of that size because things don't change overnight in terms of how you rebuild yourself and find yourself again.
0: What do you feel like were some of the ways that you coped? Because that's even, I mean, there's so many layers to this transition for you. I mean, were there, there, you know, coping, and I say coping strategies, (laughs) thinking that it's like a handout, you know, coping strategies. right?
1: (laughs) Wow, it's so funny that you say that. So, you know, I just remember that Six Feet Under came out, Right after my I lost my mom. I don't know if you know this show. It came out on I HBO. It. Okay. It was the first show. It's the first show that came out on HBO that talked about death. And I don't think I'd ever seen I mean, I grew up in a family, and we loved watching T V and movies and all this. So but I had never seen a show about death. Mm-hmm. I never heard people talk about death. And I had never lost someone of that significance in my life and so being able to at least see it on television and seeing this sort of dry humor about it was really really helpful
2: mm-hmm.
1: but you know I it took me a while I, I, just like recovering from the labral tear surgery it's a matter of you know getting the right health care providers uh, and I did a lot of yoga mm-hmm. I had a very supportive boyfriend who eventually became my husband. That's one of the good signs I found that yeah. <laughs> he saw me through a very rough time mm-hmm. and just had to pick myself up. And I did that just by moving. I didn't want to stop moving, mm-hmm. but it was hard because moving also stirred up so much in my body. Mm-hmm. I ended up doing a, a buto workshop, which is- Tell ugh, me more. Well, I'll tell you more about <laughs> Butto Butoh, um, building
0: a whole new dictionary today. Yeah, uh,
1: hopefully I'm doing it justice describing <laughs> it. Butoh dance is really interesting. So after the atomic bombs in Japan, mm-hmm. they came, there was a, a movement style that came out of that. It's very uh, internally led. It's extremely st- slow movement. It's almost painfully slow.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it was the only way I could find that I could move and feel okay moving and Mm -hmm. and I just remember that that was sort of like my key into moving again was to move really slowly and use music that was really slow too I mean I was pretty much an allegro which means fast dancer Mm
2: -hmm.
1: moving moving Mm -hmm. moving and this was about slowing down and like moving like less than an inch at a time uh-huh. and that kind of focus and slowing down I started doing yoga that kind of helped mm. shift the gears so maybe I just needed some rearranging I don't know <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah it was good The so. movement it seems like there's just this
0: theme of movement in your life I and, guess so and yes guess how it served <laughs> you and how you used it throughout <laughs> your life
1: it sounds like it's so true and I just I I, I have so much fun doing it that um I, rem- I also went into teaching, I taught middle school students oh. here uh, dance for quite some time. And I just, I love the process of seeing how people who haven't moved in a dance form before take that, you know, mm. ex- opportunity and have to try to learn it and take that risk. There's so much risk in moving through space and time and with mm. different energies. And uh, it just makes sense that. I would be moving into this healthcare profession that utilizes so many yeah. holistic modalities. Mm-hmm. And finding, finding what each individual's purpose and what is meaningful to that person really connects because I get that, I get that from my dance background. And mm-hmm. someone is much more motivated when it's something that they care about.
0: Sure, and you have that experience of disruption in what you find meaningful and purposeful oh, in yeah. your life, and so I'm sure that's a, a point that you can really connect with your Absolutely. Clients.
1: Yeah. If I think about it, I think it probably took me 10 years from the time I was really injured and not performing optimally to when I was okay to say, you know what, I think I'm ready to go back to school, and mm-hmm. I think okay. I know what I want to do, yeah. but that was 10 years, and during that time i thought oh this is such a waste of time what am i doing with my life i have no purpose i have no i'm not just kind of putting one foot in the front of the other in hindsight i think i was just trying out different things and testing the waters and all of those things ended up you know contributing to where i am now so it wasn't a waste of time but in the moment it feels like that
0: sure i think that's a really good message and a really good reminder because I know even there's a lot of people currently in OT school who who this is their first career. They're s- still in college for the first time, right? Even oh, if yeah. they're getting a master's degree, I mean, just kind of moving straight through. And, and sometimes there's even insecurity there of what am I doing? Am I wasting time? Am I mm. approaching things the right way? Could I be doing more for myself? And I just think there's so much pressure that we can put on Always. ourselves for that. So Always. my experience is a really good example of how that can really fruitful time
1: yeah i think about my younger classmates all the time and am constantly amazed at wow if i i didn't have that kind of drive to stick it out in school and being a helping profession takes tremendous amount of i feel like it took me you know this time to get to this point where i wanted to give myself to help other people mm-hmm. even though i was performing i always felt like oh i'm giving i'm sure. you know creating this energy out there but when you're actually working with people who are going through transition that takes a lot and mm-hmm. sure for my my classmates who recognize that early on it's it's quite impressive and i'm always inspired by that
0: mm-hmm. in that kind of 10 year gap that you're mm-hmm. talking about um what it like What did life look like for you
1: life was kind of cobbled together you know maybe i would be doing a project with my husband in film one week and then you know i thought for a while i was going to go into film production and yes that sounds really great i'm very organized and Mm -hmm. uh and then we had a baby which was really exciting i was uh, happy to have that life experience and transition and it's interesting because I'd always been like a working person my identity was like I am a dancer I'm working and the idea of like switching gears and being like this mom and caretaker was exciting but at the same time I thought oh again, waste of time. What am I doing? (laughs) Um, I'm just hanging out with baby. (laughs) And it worked out. It just seemed that any amount of money that I would be making would just go right to childcare. Mm -hmm. So it just made sense. And I wanted to stay home. I was really curious about my son's development. We had a very tough year. He had Uh, reflux which Mm -hmm. meant he could not lay down for like the first year of his life till we figured out it was a um, reflux issue going on and once he started medication and we had some Mm -hmm. strategies Mm -hmm. and midwives and other people coming in that's when I actually really started working with OTs because we qualified my son and qualified for early intervention so I met a lot of OTs that way and Mm -hmm. I thought Huh, they look like they're having a really great time hanging out with babies yeah. <laughs> maybe I can do it that look good. they make it look good I was like they're just playing they're rolling around that is my modern dance I there can wear know. sweats like no I won't wear sweats but like, scrubs the thing. okay there we go I don't want to think about my outfit I just want to go in and yeah. no, I, <laughs> and then we would go into like eventually as he got older we would go into the outpatient peds clinics and I thought oh this is my kind of place like there's yeah. you know ball pits and you know carpeted floor slides yeah so
0: all the adults are on the floor too yeah. all around with kids
1: <laughs> so I felt very comfortable yeah very very comfortable and yeah for, and then for a moment I was teaching at an early education school with Mm. the let's see one to three ages and I just had no problem getting on the floor and standing up and acting silly and so that seemed okay maybe I will go back and start getting those math and science Mm. courses that I need to apply to graduate school. (laughs) So
0: um it sounds like the experience with your son um really kind of Help to continue to kind of push you towards
1: OT. Yes.
0: Were there any other kind of defining moments for you, whether, you know, related to your son's experience mm-hmm. or other?
1: Yeah, so I would say, so he, because I was spending so much time with my son and we had these wonderful moms groups, I wouldn't have made it through those early years without those moms. Who we still keep in touch and see regularly today, and the kids are all growing up together, even though they go to different schools. Mm-hmm. But it also really gave me a chance to notice that okay, he's kind of on the later side of things. I'm not mm-hmm. too worried, but since he was he qualified for early intervention, he was already getting services. But they were evaluating for his fine and gross motor skills, mm-hmm. and they were lagging a bit, um, and so when he was about three or four, we took him to the developmental pediatrician and mm-hmm. he had a diagnosis of dyspraxia, or sometimes it's known as DCD, or uh, delayed coordination disorder.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that helped put it into perspective. We still didn't really know what that meant at the time, mm-hmm. but we noticed that the, the occupational therapy was really helping him uh, with his, you know, ability to run and his ability to, he, I mean, he's like one of those kids that you're like, oh, he's six. Maybe he should be riding a bike right now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, why is it taking so long? And me as a mover was like, hmm, this is interesting. Yeah. And, um, and then by the time it was time to sit down and write for kindergarten, that was the last thing he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> thankfully we found a great OT who did the handwriting without tears. Oh, and good thank goodness. He survived that and never wanted to do OT again but <laughs> his, his handwriting is amazing not you know amazing to the point where it's super legible and I think um, you know I'm so happy he went through that it was repetition repetition repetition
2: mm-hmm.
1: and he fought it a lot and he, he struggled but uh, it's something he just had to do how does he feel about you being an OT after that experience? oh I think he's fine <laughs> I, I talk about maybe having a you know, a gym one day where, you know, he can come and, like, climb the walls and jump off the trampolines. And I think he likes that. No, I think it's good. I think he <laughs> he, he sees me studying, and hopefully it's a good influence, because that's, my mom went back to school in her late 40s, okay. so that was my, always my inspiration, too, and yeah. it's nice to be that for him, to know that you can mm-hmm. always go back, you can always learn something else, and we live in a day and age, too, where It's not like you have one job your entire life. I mean, you have to be flexible. You have to be creative. And it's nice to exercise those muscles in your brain if you haven't done that for a while.
2: Yeah.
0: It's a good challenge. Yeah. It's good to keep us Mm -hmm. thinking and working and constantly developing and and growing.
1: Absolutely. So
0: you just mentioned that he would love like a climbing wall and jumping oh. on a trampoline. But so what happened in between mm. where you noticed he's not really moving yeah. in a way that feels supernatural to now him climbing walls and jumping yeah. on a trampoline?
1: So here's, here's the fascinating part for me is that he was moving. He was constantly seeking mm. movement it just wasn't coming together and it wasn't coordinated and he was completely now in hindsight that I know just completely missing Mm -hmm. um, bilateral coordination and crossing the midline all these different things that needed to happen and you know in hindsight you need that good postural stability in order to eat well in order to you know develop the in the ways that you're supposed to and it wasn't to the point where it was so noticeable like a lot of times moms would say to me oh why is he doing occupational therapy and
2: mm-hmm. it was
1: subtle and and I think now when I read about the statistics that five to six percent of kids have DCD or dyspraxia mm-hmm. I think a lot of times it gets uh I know, I know a handful of of kids that I've seen you know in his class growing up who struggle with with handwriting and sometimes in the back of my head it's not just an attention thing you always have to make sure you go through and take a closer look because these things can be really subtle
0: do you feel like your interest in movement science kind of maybe alerted you oh yes do you feel like other parents maybe wouldn't have noticed i wouldn't have noticed it no way
1: no way i mean you you know it used to be called the clumsy mm-hmm. uh, disorder or something, and it and that was the only way you could really describe it. Whereas, it's just that that uh, imprint in the brain isn't as clear, and so uh, you rely on more like proprioception mm-hmm. input or sometimes vestibular input. This is where the whole sensory integration thing yeah. is so interesting, and I just really believe that every kid is different.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: you just have to try to figure out what it is that they are that they are looking for and seeking, and try to be able to provide an opportunity for them yeah. to develop those adaptive responses.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so you initially started to see some some of those kind of subtle differences in your son, and sort of I don't know, kind of you describe that kinesthetic process for mm-hmm. you of kind of trying to experience what other people are experiencing movement wise, and you mm-hmm. notice there's something that's there's a disconnect, right? Mm-hmm. So, what led you to that next step of of seeking other opinions and healthcare?
1: Absolutely, great question. I well, first of all, I I loved my pediatrician. He uh, we until he retired, uh, we had seen the same pediatrician. However, in that first year, my son was spitting up a lot and crying, mm-hmm. and and we just were not sleeping. And kept going back to the pediatrician. He's growing. He said, all these things are are checking out. And I would say, yeah, but he just keeps spitting up. And and it just, I can't put him down to sleep. He won't sleep. And he said, well, all babies spit up. And in hindsight, yes, all babies spit up, but not all babies feel comfortable when they spit up and, and are very fussy. And my aunt came out to visit and... She works in early education and early intervention Mm -hmm. in Virginia, and she was able to quantify it for us. And she said, wow, he is irritable 80% of his waking time. So I don't think we, in the first year, my husband and I probably didn't Mm -hmm. sleep more than two hours at a clip because we were switching off. Mm -hmm. And finally, the very conservative pediatrician, who I love, Uh, gave us a great referral to uh, a pediatric gastroenterologist Mm -hmm. who figured out the right uh, reflux medication that helped to control that. And I was trying all kinds of, oh, I'll just do, I won't have dairy, I won't have soy, I won't do this, Mm -hmm. I won't do that, and I was trying to, nothing was working. And then when the medication was correct, that was when he started sleeping for longer clips Mm -hmm. and positioning became easier um, you know I never regret it though because I feel that to this day we're very much in sync with each other because mm-hmm. we spent so much time trying to figure out okay wh- what is going to make you feel comfortable what what is it that you need and um, and there were so many beautiful moments of fun and laughter um, that it made up for some of those yeah. sleepless or very many sleepless nights or yeah. you know
0: when your aunt point was it your mm-hmm. pointed out to you that he was kind of uncomfortable or irritable eighty percent of the time. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you were you were living that. Um, did mm-hmm. that surprise you when she yes. modified it? I mean, what was that reaction when you realized eighty percent of his time, you you know, you guys were spending trying we, to make it better.
1: I mean, when you are sleep deprived, it is torture, mm-hmm. and and you just think that that is the norm. And this was our first baby. Sure. We don't have family close by and just kind of winging it you know and had friends who've had maybe kids slightly older and you know moms clubs and groups were wonderful you need that kind of support mm-hmm. uh, to get through new periods in your life like that at the same time i di- there was maybe one other mom that i felt was struggling the way that i was struggling and i just knew that we weren't gonna you know get to a good place unless we had you know you just keep trying until you find the right thing that works and between the early intervention we had a feeding ot come out and work with us Mm -hmm. and uh, and then later on addressing the gross motor fine motor skills um, it made all the difference in the world and i'm so grateful for that insight you know from so many different people Uh, it's a process
0: So you got to see OT and other professions at work. So yes. what? What made you like OT more than maybe speech therapy?
1: Physical yeah. Therapy? Well, I yeah physical therapy. I love physical therapy. Yeah. It got me through a lot of tough times in dance. And for a minute, I thought maybe I would go after physical therapy. But I saw the changes in my son, and mm-hmm. yeah, I could see it was working. You know, things. It was always family-based. The OT would spend time. We could address whatever was happening on the moment in that day. When an OT can come into your home, as a new mom, you're not getting out. You're, you know, kind of isolated at home. And the OT would also work with whatever was in the room. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, later on when um, we he went to more of a off-site or site-based pediatric mm-hmm. outpatient. Uh, then I got to see, okay, now I see how the speech therapists work with the, the OTs and the PTs, mm-hmm. but I felt that I could actually see us doing the activities that we that I wanted to do, that he wanted to do. All these things like getting dressed. I don't know why it took me, you know, (laughs) three hours to get out the door, you know. And part of it was just the coordination to get the clothes on. Or saying, you know, knowing he wanted to do that. But how do you get there? And so I just said, nah, that sounds like a really focused profession.
0: Mm. And you could kind of see the results of it in your daily life. I could
1: see the results in my daily life in terms of, oh, I can actually do the things that we wanna do. Okay, we have to get dressed, we have to eat breakfast, Mm -hmm. we have to do these things in order to do the other things we also wanna do. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, and for example, again, he went to a Montessori school, which I was really excited about. I was hoping to find a Montessori preschool. The only issue was is that because the kids can pick what they wanna do, my son never wanted to pick up a pen or a pencil or scissors. (laughs) So he was constantly running around building and (laughs) knocking things down and jumping and and spinning and stuff. Um, So, you know, it got to kindergarten. It was like, oh, wow, this is not, he just Mm -hmm. refuses, avoids at all costs. Why is it so frustrating for him? And you know, so And then we got to see the way an OT would look at it. And I loved. To, I would always ask if I could sit in on the sessions. I had nothing else to do. So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> got you out of the house. Too. I was out of the house. I was like,
1: I'm not going to sit in the waiting room. I want to see yeah. what they're doing. And I was fascinated because oh, they'd have a, a scooter board. But it wasn't just play, right? It would always have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And so he would feel accomplished, I could see the progress, mm-hmm. and the OTs would always work and want to know what I was seeing, what we were seeing and dealing with at home, so very holistic, and I just thought that was unique about the profession. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then
0: at what point did you start to take some of those prerequisites, mm-hmm.
1: starting that process? Starting that process. Oh, he my son got a little bit older, a little oh. more independent, yeah. and yeah. I started just dabbling into like what would it take what would it look like talking to a lot of people mm-hmm. do i really want to spend the money it takes to go back to school it's a big I- mm-hmm. the best advice someone gave me was that it's it's an investment mm-hmm. you know i won't be working for many years and when my husband and i look at it like that as an investment in my mm-hmm. future mm-hmm. And, and and i feel so fortunate to have that opportunity to do that
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, it 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 makes it A lot easier to think ahead you know get through the moment of the decisions to do that
0: so then you were kind
1: of working in the home working in the well i was once once my son started going to first grade second grade Mm -hmm. i was teaching dance to middle school students you know, going through this process of watching how he was developing, watching my middle school students and teaching them modern and contemporary dance, which was amazing. I learned so much from them and, and, uh, and really got some experience teaching and, Mm -hmm. and seeing what worked for some kids and other kids. I mean, I had to figure out another way to explain something. And, That's when I really also was learning about how differently people learn. And that influenced my teaching to go, Mm -hmm. okay, I can't just teach it the way I know and how I learn. I have to figure out how someone else learns.
0: And what a great age. Oh, yeah. Pubescent, middle schoolers. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to teach them how to move when Mm -hmm. everything...
1: It's like the worst part of... (laughs) You know, on the one hand, like they're at the point in their development where you want to try on all the different hats, this is the opportunity to to do that. At the same time, it is your body in space with all these other awkward kids, Mm. and dance is very emotional. Is very, you know, we were all I was also teaching choreography, so giving uh students the opportunity to to write with their bodies the way they would write a story Um, so they had so much to say and and uh, but at times it could be really really hard and uh, it was it's it's I love every stage of life I do realize Mm -hmm. that in the times that I've either taught gyrotonics or taught dance or worked with you know my son and other babies it's just the whole lifespan is fascinating to me so I think that also is what when I found out that OT's work in all these age ranges it really Mm -hmm. made me excited
0: Yeah, definitely a really cool feature of our profession and just the versatility and and yet there's this common framework Mm -hmm. of approaching every stage of the lifespan that's right pretty cool I love the framework I got to it
1: (laughs) (laughs) at first when they introduced us to the framework and the roots and the foundations Mm -hmm. being in mental health that really blew me away. Mm -hmm. I I mean, I think mental health is critical and so uh, underutilized. And I really hope to see a way for OT to make uh, its footing back in mental health, Mm -hmm. Um, especially after doing a level, my first level two in pediatric mental health and working with with families and children in the foster care system and providing wraparound services, Mm -hmm. working as a team with, Psychologists, psychiatrists, pediatricians, wow. and realizing that OT has such an important role, and part of it is just educating our colleagues uh, what we bring to the table, mm-hmm. and there is a lot.
0: So, OT and the foster uh, system, I feel like we could do mm-hmm. a whole other episode about that. Mm-hmm. What are some highlights of that experience, or at least maybe mm-hmm. just like those moments that really up stuck up out up. to you? Yeah.
1: I think with some of the families, they were in the process of figuring out, you know, is this the right family? And actually, the agency was more about finding the right family for the child as opposed to the right child for the right family, um, if that makes sense. Meaning, Can you
0: clarify what that looked like a little bit more? Yeah, Yeah, so,
1: so with this agency where I was doing my level two field work... The first process would be for families who wanted to apply for these wraparound services. Mm -hmm. They would have to go through extensive uh, commitment in terms of continuing education for their family Mm -hmm. to make sure that they were ready to bring in a new child into their family. Mm -hmm. They had the right tools. Many of these children have entered into the foster care system because of being given up or Mm -hmm. fetal alcohol syndrome. A lot of children had more high needs Mm -hmm. Um, and so the whole point of this agency was to be able to provide one place Mm -hmm. for the children to come and receive continued care throughout their childhood and for parents who needed that either psychological support uh, logistical support whatever they needed and uh, everything was built through the department of mental Mm -hmm. health services so the intervention
0: was really with the whole biological family and the foster families? Or what did
1: that look like? Oh yeah, let me, okay. So, typically the children were already in the foster care system. Meaning, they try to keep the child with their biological parents Mm -hmm. as much as they can. When that is not possible, then it goes to the next of kin. If that's not possible, then it, you know, becomes finding a, a good match and Uh, and you want to try to support those families so that they can continue to grow as they, you know, go through all kinds of issues that come up and sometimes the court Mm -hmm. systems, kids can be tied up in that for a very long time and uh, so in terms of how OT's role in that situation would be a lot of times children, you know, having had significant trauma in early childhood would have a lot of issues with just getting through their day. Sleep would be a sure. common issue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, attention, yeah. uh, being able to participate and socialize. and
0: uh, mm-hmm. what, um, what part did you enjoy most about that field work?
1: Mm, I loved that we had the flexibility to visit in the home. Mm-hmm. So to me that is wonderful because you can see how best you can support the family Mm -hmm. identify what it is that they're working on and how you can support that and not having that limitation of a period of time that you have to be in and be out like Mm -hmm. you can you can design the intervention based on what the child and the family needs Mm -hmm. and that seems so much more um as opposed to coming into a clinic and having a very set amount of time to accomplish sure. something. Yeah.
2: yeah,
0: and there's something really important about the natural environment. I would imagine, especially oh, yeah. for you know some of these kids who maybe don't have a lot of continuity in their life, to then bring them into a whole new environment sounds like it would be really challenging. That's
1: right, and yeah. that would frequently be a big uh, theme throughout, is mm. how do we get these routines, roles, new environments sure. up and running and consistent and supportive and when things were not going well how do you troubleshoot mm-hmm. the other great thing is the teamwork and the camaraderie of the professionals having everyone have a weekly team meeting
2: mm. and Good.
1: really respect each other's professions and ask questions and it, it was a very nice environment to work yeah. I like that teamwork approach
0: was there anything about that experience just considering the you know, just I think the nuances and the difficulties that a lot of those families were probably navigating? What yeah, what were some of the hard parts of that mm. as from from the team perspective or from the OT perspective? Well,
1: the always the the interesting thing is when you have to make a call to um, child protective services mm. and it could be as something as what a child says in passing, and then taking it to the team, and really getting everyone's perspective from the times that they have worked with the mm-hmm. family and the child, and making it as a collective decision as possible. So you're not like making this decision in a void. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, especially for the psychologists who are doing the talk therapy, when they would actually really benefit from just talking and sharing with all the other professionals mm-hmm. because they're taking in so much of that secondary trauma
2: sure. that
1: by sharing it and by working through it together as a team it was much more doable. And they mm-hmm. also were very good about practicing uh, self-care for the team. So we'd have like days where we, like once a month I think we'd do activities that would be just restorative mm-hmm. for, for everyone, and, and give everyone an outlet to kind of address anything that was wow. bothering them.
0: Sounds like a pretty healthy work environment. Yeah. You know, it sounds like they really cared about the their employees and, and yeah. their workers, understanding that this is a really
1: demanding job, especially mm-hmm. with you know some of these really vulnerable populations. Extremely vulnerable. Yeah. Yes.
0: So how have you seen in your field work? So you, know, mm-hmm. you completed one level two field work mm-hmm. and you're about to go on to your My second, second level line. two, I'm very
1: excited. Yeah. I haven't been placed, but I'm looking forward to wherever that will be. Yeah. And uh, I'm taking a motor control elective right now, which is okay. extremely fascinating and sure. learning a lot. And especially by being able to observe OTs in um, acute rehabilitation mm-hmm. and seeing what that process looks like yeah.
0: so uh, have you you know of course mm-hmm. we don't need to have our ma- minds mm-hmm. made up at any mm-hmm. point as mm-hmm. you've demonstrated <laughs> right it's all fluid yeah. and we can continue yeah, to yeah. change and evolve but at this point um how do you see your past experience your um, experience with your son your fieldwork mm-hmm. experience is shaping kind of your next
1: steps Great question. Next step. I hope I can... I know I love working with children. There's no doubt about that. But I do find a lot of satisfaction working with families because these units, I mean, you spend maybe a little bit of time with a child, but it's really the family and educating. And I benefited so much from the education that I received from the OTs and... That's something I hope I can give back, and just to be able to get out into the field, get some experience. And I know that I love collaborating, so I would want to keep consistent with meeting up with my colleagues who are, I have a friend who's in medical school right now. I really want to make sure that doctors who are graduating from medical school know what OTs do. I want
0: <laughs> Amen. Amen. Amen.
1: Um, Yeah, and and just getting the word out because advocacy really is a big deal and Mm -hmm. something that my program is pushing pretty heavily, and I do see the value in that. I don't know if I would value it if I was younger, but I think now, you know, having a voice and making sure to put a little time into that really can go a long way for making more changes on a global level. Sure.
0: You know so you're in school right now and as you mentioned before um, there's some students who are coming straight out of a bachelor's degree Mm -hmm. I guess just students with all experiences and age levels
1: yes I I would say our program is pretty diverse Uh, there's a handful of us this is our second or third careers Mm -hmm. and it's it's nice to be able to roll through and I'm always learning every day from my younger colleagues, especially when it comes to media and tech, uh, okay. and also hearing their perspectives on things and what, how did they come into OT. I don't, mm-hmm. There were very few experiences I had with OT in my earlier life, so uh, I always find it fascinating. Sometimes it's a family member who's had OT or mm-hmm. just something they found in undergraduate school. Mm-hmm. On the other end, you know, I have friends who have grown children and have picked this as a career, mm-hmm. and so that's, there's some nice camaraderie in there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then other uh, students who have had worked professionally either in body work or even all kinds of other work. So mm-hmm. it is, it's a nice – I was very happy the first day of school when I realized, oh, this is, these are the kind of people that OT attracts. Okay, this is great. These are people I like to hang out with.
0: a good
1: sign. Mm -hmm. What's so interesting in my program, I'm like, I mean, talk about diversity. I'm in a class where we have veterans. We have people who are passionate about, you know, rehabilitation for Mm -hmm. soldiers who have PTSD Mm -hmm. and just seeing the range and the specific passions. I have one classmate who loves dogs beyond belief and
2: mm-hmm.
1: just the idea of doing dog therapy and animal ther- mm-hmm. a- animal assisted therapy yeah. is wonderful and it's definitely broadened I mean I came into the program thinking I knew what OT was and every day I'm constantly going wow oh we are so great and because the framework is so well written
2: mm-hmm.
1: we really can thank those for who developed it to outline it in such in such a way that it can be shaped very lucky that was good thinking <laughs> <You did> good. <laughs> did They were thinking. <laughs> yeah I didn't think about frameworks quite in the way that I think about frameworks now yeah, uh,
0: yeah. I think I've come to appreciate them a lot more yes yeah. I think it's hard starting it, it's, it's hard because it's important to start with the framework it's important to start with the theories and the models set mm-hmm. what you learn fits into this larger concept right. Like framework, right? Yeah. Um, but then I feel like we don't appreciate it as much. Mm-hmm. And then it just really becomes this, this really strong foundation
1: that makes everything else come together. Right. At first I thought, oh, why are they teaching us the history in our first semester? And mm-hmm. looking back, it makes perfect sense mm-hmm. because Not only can you define what OT can be to everyone who's going to ask you that, which is everyone, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you have a sense of what the profession has gone through Mm -hmm. to get to where we are today and how hard people have worked to protect our practice and continue to advocate for Mm -hmm. us and making sure that we can keep our scope of practice.
0: How do you feel like your background in dance and choreography and movement science um, as well as being a mom of a child that benefited from occupational therapy how does all of that influence your OT lens?
2: Mm.
1: I'm going to think about that for one second. (laughs) I think my the way I think is often very broad and, and then I will zoom in. And mm-hmm. I think always everything relates to movement because that's my second language.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So uh, I'm not even, a, it's like speaking a second language. I'm not even aware of when I'm seeing like movement patterns mm-hmm. and different things. Um, I'm constantly reading articles about how movement music especially is being utilized in occupational therapy interventions i'm curious to see what the research is saying and keeping an eye out i, I hope that in the future that i can provide either guidance to people who are doing the studies and the research either with yeah. clients that i've worked with or helping to develop to develop protocols that can be used sure. I don't think that you have to be a professional dancer to use movement in treatment. I think it's very universal and I think it can look very different. And I definitely feel that modern dance is very accessible. I mean, pretty much anybody can do it. You can even dance sitting in a chair, it doesn't have to look a certain way. We're trained just in a society that we live in. Okay, you're either a dancer or you're clumsy, but you're (laughs) not, you know, sometimes the most interesting movers are people who move in unusual ways. Yeah,
0: Yeah, that idea of movement as a second language, I can just, Mm -hmm. that's not the way that I think or interpret the world, so Mm -hmm. I can just imagine that that perspective is going to be really helpful Mm -hmm. when you're working with your clients and picking up on those maybe little, subtle cues.
1: I remember being um, fascinated in the mental health immersion in my program. Mm -hmm. And the level one field work I was in was in an acute inpatient hospital setting. Mm -hmm. And different units, there was the adolescent unit, Mm -hmm. there's the adult unit, and then the geriatric unit. And really being able to connect with people in crisis, sometimes all you can do is just be present and just breathe and figure out a way to connect sometimes that's with music or sometimes mm-hmm. that's you know music with a prop like it's, you know moving scarves together or yeah. parachutes together or just finding those ways of connecting with people and we all move so mm-hmm. it's a pretty universal language and uh since that's my go-to and where I feel my strengths are, that's what I rely on. But, you know, I think the collaborative spirit and effort uh, can only enrich that.
0: You're making me think back to my little two field works. One of them was at a geriatric inpatient psych unit.
2: Really? Yeah. What did you do? Oh uh, Well,
0: <laughs> it, it makes me think of our morning groups. We alternated. Um, but every morning we led some sort of group, and I mm-hmm. believe, I can't remember now, it was like four or five years ago, but we did like um, a stretching and exercise oh, group yes. in the morning, um, but it was really open, so I would make them dance groups a lot, actually, but it was so funny because mm-hmm. we, it was required that we keep them seated, mm-hmm. since the geriatric population. Of course, you have to be careful, right? right? Just right? to be safe, and there were enough people and a mm-hmm. few enough therapists that, just to be safe, we needed to, Absolutely. to keep them seated. So yeah. I would do seated modified yoga. I did seated Zumba There's so much you can do. Which, maybe I shouldn't say that because I'm not certified in anything. It was just fun.
1: It's just fun. And And it was
0: just seeing, you know, sometimes those people who would come to group Mm -hmm. and wouldn't be participating. Oh, yeah. And they didn't technically have to be there. So you could tell there was something bringing them in to sit Mm -hmm. down. And they weren't Mm -hmm. necessarily moving. Mm -hmm. But that was really cool just to see that something about that experience for them, even Mm -hmm. if they weren't actively participating in a... Oh yeah, movement way there was something just
1: being in that energy in that essence I can remember similarly in those geriatric (laughs) wards you know we'd be singing together moving together while seated (laughs) usually and you know you'd have the staff coming in to like look in what are they doing in there and then you'd yeah there were many people who wouldn't even be necessarily doing the movements, but maybe even just doing like little hand gestures Mm -hmm. or just like gently swaying. And you could just tell for a moment that there was a connection, not only with myself and the clients and the patients, but also with one another and just transcending sort of this very sterile environment. Mm -hmm. And um, for a while I thought about being a dance therapist, but I actually... When I started doing looking into the career of occupational therapy, I just felt like it is so wonderfully broad and so evidence based that that's I felt that that would be a stronger way of making a difference. Sure. So I was willing to put in the work for the the elements that I needed.
0: And you can infuse so much of the yeah. so much dance and, and those movement principles into Absolutely. what you're doing in OT.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and maybe maybe one of my missions is to be able to empower other therapists that you don't have to be a super mover in order to benefit patients who enjoy music or movement or even dance making, which reminds me, one of my favorite things I did before I got into OT school was I volunteered at a children's hospital. And I was partnering with this artist group they uh, had me do a movement workshop with teenagers who had recently had brain surgery and knowing that there would be limitations i made sure that the class it was a two hour workshop it was quite long period of time and i mean they were all in a condition where they could participate and but the focus was more about the breathing and the stretching and, and getting over that fear of using your body again after being in such um, a condition. And then to take it into dance making, what those elements are like. And it happened to fall, the workshop happened to fall on Mother's Day. So all the participants had family there and mothers. And so they ended up making duets with their family members. And it was really cool. I was quite amazed at uh, just the joy that I got Mm -hmm. to see and that to me it was like that's what it is it's connecting with people and making them realize that they might be capable Mm -hmm. of more than what they might see for themselves at that moment in time.
2: That's really beautiful. I
1: love it. Mm.
0: So is there any as we're closing that comes Mm. to mind Um, I'm thinking in particular advice for Mm. people coming from a different career or coming Mm -hmm. from a transitionary period in life
1: I say do it it's an investment (laughs) it is totally an investment you will feel at least I did insecure at all times but Mm -hmm. there's this life experience for what I may not have in terms of the wit and the sharpness and I'm not as speedy as some of my younger peers um which is funny to say I never (laughs) thought I would be in that position to be talking (laughs) like this um that life experience while on the one hand you can like draw upon it especially when you're like oh at what age do kids start doing that and then I'm thinking in my head oh yeah I know exactly when Mm -hmm. but at the same time it can also you know you have to filter through some of your life's experience to actually get to what you need to know so just do it I think you know there's no there's no harm in trying and if you get into it and it's not working for you it's okay to change uh, I do taking it back to dance for a second one of my yeah. favorite choreographers that I worked with his name is Shen Wei he's a Chinese choreographer based in New York City and I do remember we had a very big, we were preparing a new piece Mm -hmm. for a tour, and it was To the Rite of Spring, which was Igor Stravinsky's very famous, it's a very complex, abstract piece of music. The whole thing was just really stressful, and we were, Mm -hmm. you know, it was a brand new piece of work coming up with new choreography. And we had funders coming in to watch what we had, and we had to show what we had. And I remember right after that, the Shen Wei looked at us and said hey we we have got to scrap everything we're going to start from scratch and it was terrifying because it meant we had so much less time to come together for everything we're under a deadline wow. but it was the bravest thing and I was mm-hmm. I was it was very liberating that he was willing to take that risk mm-hmm. I mean it could have mm-hmm. fallen you know but instead it became such a beautiful piece of work and I'll always remember that because that was a big risk. And sometimes you just you do it and you look at it, you step back and you you, you know change your change your direction. You have these life transitions for a reason and if they're not clear in the moment, maybe it'll be clearer later on.
0: That's very wise advice. And that I love that you brought up that bravery piece. Yeah. You, because I think it, it does take that. Yeah. I love your I love your points though about, about transition time and being okay with pausing and reevaluating and mm-hmm. that change is good.
1: Yeah, it's that that's that downtime or like turning off your phone and daydreaming. Those are some really those are critical for coming up with new ideas or inspirations.
2: Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So is there I always ask mm-hmm. there's any resources or book recommendations Ooh. that you have? Um, you know whether related to what we've been talking mm-hmm. about or not that you you know might want us to take a look at.
1: I would say I don't have very much time for fun reading, but I did read uh, Suzanne Callahan's Brain on Fire. Mm-hmm. She is a writer or was a writer for the New York Times. Young, 25 year old, and all of a sudden she started having these symptoms that were like schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. And all kinds of just very dramatic changes in her personality and she had a very you know high caliber job at the New York Times was a reporter writing living in New York City and went from like fully functional to fully hospitalized and it took I feel like I can't remember exactly but I feel like it take it took maybe well over a year for them to figure out what was going on. It was quite surprising. But because she's a writer, she was able to articulate and I think her dad was in the hospital for much of the time and was keeping journals and stuff. So she really is talking about it from a patient's perspective of feeling like your body doesn't belong to you and then finding the right treatment and then recovering. So. Quite I think those
0: patient perspectives yeah. are so helpful. Yeah. Yeah, whenever I read a book that's from that first-person perspective, it just gives you something so rich that you can't get from
1: any other source. So, so much. Yeah. And uh, hearing, like, when we have guest lecturers come in, they really make a point in my program to bring in the lived experience. Mm-hmm. And I, pretty much every time I'm, like, sobbing by the end because when else am I going to have this opportunity to have people come in and share their lives and yeah. – and their journeys, and mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's it's a people profession, and I love yeah. people, so yeah. it's great.
0: I know, I, I always say it's such a privilege that yes. we get to be part of people's lives at usually their most vulnerable points, yeah. or in some of the more vulnerable areas of their life, you know, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, it's such a privilege to get that window, and that they would invite us into that space with uh, them, you know?
1: I felt that way, too, yeah. uh, that it is... It feels like a privilege and to respect them in their process mm-hmm. and just to be a, a person there to support them. Yeah. And yeah, it's very special, it's very mm-hmm. unique.
0: Yeah. I have a, a tendency to be, I'm so social, I love people, that's why I became an OT, but I have a tendency, <laughs> no matter what my mood is, mm-hmm. you know, whether I feel awful or I'm mm-hmm. um, you know, on cloud nine, like just to have the same sort of excitement and ambition when mm-hmm. somebody comes in. And so I had a colleague, you know, say, is that really authentic? How do you go from feeling miserable mm-hmm. in the office to stepping out in the clinic and you're so energetic and so <laughs> happy? I mean, which one's the real you? <laughs> um, and I, <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a fair observation, mm-hmm. um, but I really just felt like if my patients are inviting me into that, yeah. I mean, I've got to bring my full self, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it's so special and I can't take that for granted. Yeah, you know, I'm hoping they're bringing their full selves to it, and so I have to find that within me to come to them as well. Yeah,
1: you know? it's it's a, definitely a two-way street.
0: Mm. I'm excited to read that book. I have Yeah, Brain on Fire. Suzanne yeah.
1: Callahan. <laughs> I don't really read many yeah. books for fun, and that was that one was just like, crap. I would like uh, put everything aside and have to read it. Oh, this is a good one. Yeah, when right? yeah. you just want to stay up late reading I them. Just or, like I yeah. need an escape. And yet it was so, it was heavy, but it was very interesting. Yeah. And she talks about just how the doctors were trying to figure out, it was like this mysterious disease, mm. so I always love those.
0: The journey with them, kind mm-hmm. of seeing that whole process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, well I'm going to be adding that to the Goodreads app and all yeah. the advertising it. Oh, yeah, so that people oh, can add that to their reading list. Yeah, and, uh, awesome. share some discussion about that. Hopefully. Yay. Um I just want to, you know, mm-hmm. we're not quite done yet. Okay, I just want to yeah. thank you um, for being on the show and for giving us just this really cool perspective that's uh, different than what people are learning in school and and different than many of our experiences. Mm-hmm. And just to to see kind of the diversity of thought that comes into our profession mm-hmm. and just really appreciate what we all bring to the table.
1: That's so great. I feel I, I feel very happy to be appreciated for that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And so we, part of this talk was talking about your second voyage Mm -hmm. into O.T., which brings us back to our wine that we've been enjoying today. Um, Fabulous. Yeah. So this, again, um, second voyage, 2018 Cabernet Sauvignon um, from Southern Australia. Um, I'm horrible at pronouncing things, but Kunawara, South Africa? South Australia?
1: I've never been to Australia, so... Me neither.
0: Well, we're going to find out mm-hmm. in the comments if I pronounced that poorly. Great. <laughs> I hope. Help us. Please correct me. <laughs> yeah. So what did you think of this?
1: I like it. It's very... It really uh, is an easy-to-drink, mm-hmm. very palatable. Even though it's a dry wine, I feel like it's also very warming, so mm. I, I do feel that I also love the image on this bottle is of this like, beautiful like ocean sea with this mm-hmm. very uh, elaborate boat. And, uh, there's movement on it. There's so much <laughs> movement. I don't know how you did this, Miranda, but you found something that had a ton of movement, and that's exactly where my eye goes.
0: That's amazing. Total coincidence. Yeah. I love it. I yeah. love it. Um, yeah, I really like this one, too. I'm always a fan of a Cab It's kind mm-hmm. of my go-to wine. Interesting. Um, I do tend to prefer drier wines mm-hmm. as well. Um, I thought this one was really smooth, mm-hmm. too. Like you said, like, really easy to drink. Yeah. Um, but it also had a lot of flavor as well. Um, mm-hmm. Lots of different, like, fruity notes as well. Mm-hmm. Kind of, like, darker. Certainly not sweet. Not um, sweet. Kind of, like, plummy. I, I, I'm plum. definitely feeling some plum. hmm
1: Right, because it's not it, It's dry, but not in the way where you're just you don't have that little burst of fruity flavor. Mm-hmm. So this yeah. one does.
0: Well, this was a good off-the-shelf pick. Awesome, love it. it. Yeah, we'll post that on the website mm-hmm. if people want to give it a try and give us their thoughts on that as well. That's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Kathleen, if someone's listening and really. Mm-hmm. Uh, wants to connect with you or find out more Mm -hmm. uh, is there a way that they can reach you
1: oh yeah I'm very accessible my email is my name Kathleen Davidson at gmail.com and please feel free to email me I love connecting with people and even if you're just thinking about making a change or pursuing occupational therapy I am almost about to graduate so I'm in it right now and I can try to answer any questions that you may have
0: well, I'm really excited to see how you keep using your background in this movement as a second language to influence your practice as you graduate and move out as a therapist. Yay!
1: I'm so excited. Thank you so much for having me, Miranda.
0: Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of OT Uncorked. If you're looking for a next step or a new resource for more great OT content, check out otpodcasts.com. There are so many great OT podcasts that are enriching our broader OT community, and we need to keep spreading the word. Please keep listening for a word from two fellow OT podcasters. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy. And I'm Anna. We are second-year occupational therapy students who host a podcast called Occupation Station.
2: In our podcast, we discuss different occupationally related fields and concepts that we find interesting.
0: Because it's our podcast, and we can do what we want with it. So listen to our extremely amateur and moderately researched opinions about things like what it means to be globally minded in this profession, why we should care about the Alzheimer's dementia population, why assistive technology is relevant to us, and what motivational interviewing is, and how we can use it in this practice.
1: Find us on Instagram at
0: occupationstationpod.com. And you can find our podcast and so many awesome occupational therapy-related podcasts with better research on otpodcast.com. Thank you again for listening to this episode of OT Uncorked. If you enjoyed this episode, share OT Uncorked with a friend, leave a review, and please hit the subscribe button. Stay healthy, everyone. Cheers!